we have seen different levels of what we call mimetic violence from the most explicit, uh, usually aimed at deshumanizing the political opponents through catological and monstrous elements to more sensitive messages that are uh, difficult to decode. This normalization of aggressive rhetoric and open attack on democracy that intensified political polarization. everybody, welcome back to Hate Speech Around the World, where we explore cultural challenges, political debates, and legal regulations around hate speech. Today, we're here with Gabriel Bayari to turn our focus away from the global north and to look at South America and explore the relationship between hate speech and right-wing politics. So, Gabriel, would you like to introduce yourself? So yeah, my name is Gabriel Bayarri. I'm a British Academy Newton International Fellow at the Institute of Languages, Cultures and Societies at the School of Advanced Study in the Uni of London. So I am an interdisciplinary researcher that works at the intersection of communication and social science. And I have uh, applied political experience working with the United Nations and as an elected city councillor with uh, Podemos political party in Spain. I have conducted ethnographic fieldwork in physical and virtual spaces uh, where the discourses of Latin American right-wing populism operate. And uh, my current uh, project is called Discourse Polarization, the Mimetic Violence of the Latin American Right-Wing Populism. Wow, uh, that's, that's a lot of really fascinating background. Thank you so much. Could you briefly summarize for us what are the main questions that are guiding your work and beyond your regional focus on, on Latin America, what are the main issues and the real focus of your current project? Sure. So during the last decade, I have worked in the European and Latin American context, specifically in Brazil, analyzing its post-colonial structure of power at the root of the rise of the far right in the country. In recent years, we have seen in Latin America the emergence of populism, the advances of right-wing radicalism, and the resurgence of extreme nationalism. So my present project aims to analyze the mimetic communication of some of the most representative leaders of Latin American right-wing populist parties and how this communication exacerbates political polarization and violence. So just to understand memes uh, through their simple and humorous discourses, legitimize forms of violence against political opponents, normalizing and consolidating political polarization. So the objective of the project is uh, twofold. First, to investigate how these discursive representations contribute to legitimizing political violence against opponents, and second, to understand the lessons that the Latin American region brings to the analysis of global right-wing populism and authoritarian political expressions. That's, that's a really great summary. When you say mimetic memes, you do mean, you mean memes, like popular, popular memes. Yeah, actually, there's like different ways to understand what a meme. Let me start by defining what I mean by meme. Uh, the term meme uh, has become popular in its humorous use. Uh, it's a type of humor that various authors refer as multimodal and complex. But in, in our research, we have like different levels of uh, mimetic violence. 
to more sensitive messages that are difficult to, to decode. So that's uh, one of the definitions to understand the concept that after we can, we can speak more about mimetic violence. Okay, perfect. So since you, you are the first person on this podcast who is not working on the Global North, could you talk to us a little bit about the regional context that you're working on legally in the Latin American context? How is hate speech defined, approached? What laws and definitions are circulating in that space? And also from a more socially and cultural perspective, what are the particularities of, of speech or the discourses or the silences that really stand out, especially in, for example, the Brazilian context that you work in? So in general, we refer to hate speeches as those to generate forms of violent discrimination. However, in connection with my research, and I will speak about the Latin American context now, I would like to briefly explain the importance of humor uh, often as a hidden form of uh, violence. Like psychosocial uh, studies of, on violence usually understand violence as an aggression caused with the intention to harm or humiliate, while humor seems not to cause harm but joy and laughter. However, humor often camouflages hate speech and, and violence. So this violence has been part of humor during the history and violent or aggressive humor has recently become a common tactic in politics. So why I'm saying this in connection with the research? The Latin American context has been establishing specific anti-discrimination policies in its constituent processes, as we have seen in Bolivia, in Ecuador, and in different uh, countries. The role of humor as, uh, as veiled violence has not been made clear in their regulations. So, uh, for example, the European Commission is working on these issues, uh, but also so far only by refining codes of conduct. So there's still no legal frameworks in Europe that guarantee non-discrimination through these specific um, codes. That's something that in, in Latin America is happening slower, but yeah, uh, little by little, these concerns are starting to be more clear and organized in the in the public policies. But it's like, uh, still we have like a long way. So the most prevalent forms of violent humor in in these countries in Latin America uh, tend to be related to problems that have uh, been made invisible. So, for example, in the case of Brazil, that's my 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 specialty. Brazil did not go through a civil war or an apartheid system as India or South Africa or United States did. So, of colonial origins present in the culture in the Brazilian culture is invisibilized. So, through humor, uh, we can see how racism is still one of the main viruses in the country, and uh, regulation is still far away uh, to understand this and put some specific public policies to stop uh, hate expressions. That's really interesting. Could you maybe, because in the first episode of the podcast, we talked about implicit hate speech and we had Katerina Strani on who has, has looked a lot at like the way 
hate speech can be coded and hidden in terms of dog whistles and things like that. So if you're looking specifically at humor, could you maybe just give us an example? Like what's an example of the humor that you are talking about? So, yeah, normally we can see different kinds of humor. Normally we have like different grades to understand what is uh, happening, how, uh, well, in the case of far right that we, we can speak later about this, they construct this idea of, of us uh, against them. So for doing this, they construct like a political antagonist as monsters or like a comic, a comic characters. And they try to put different elements in images that can ridiculize them and normalize uh, this. This, as I was saying, has like different levels. So we can find this from upper, from some subtle, more basic images where we can uh, detect these elements to more uh, explicit discourses. So we can find also like scatological images where the idea of humor is more difficult to, to understand. So there is a huge way to different kind of images to, to understand different ways that uh, humor and violence are related. That's very resonant, if I might just quickly mention that. It's very resonant with the Indian context where if you're thinking, for example, about caste and you're thinking about how former untouchable communities are treated, there is a lot of, because you were saying scatological, there's a lot of coding, for example, dirty animal names, the use of animal names to insult former untouchable communities, to do hate speech without obviously doing hate speech and it's not so much humor but it is definitely symbolically framed so it's, it's very interesting i think generally brazil and india have some interesting similarities but maybe you can tell us a little bit more because this is so fascinating your work specifically focuses on this relationship then between right-wing politics and hate speech which is very interested i think in the in the current context and what we know that brazil has gone through over the past five years or so so can you tell us a little bit more about how you came became interested in this relationship what the background is to you doing this work so first of all i use the term uh, right-wing populism to refer to the ideological conservatism and national populist influences mainly the construction of a political antagonism that we were speaking about, alongside explicit praise and support of local capitalist system. That's like the definition that I use. So the relationship between hate speech and far right is mutually and organically dependent on each other. So the ultra-right polarization that divides society into an us versus them is achieved through resources such as fear, manipulation, lapidary assertions, irony, sarcasm, directed at the enemy and the discrediting of what has been understood as politics. So despite studies of other rhetorical aspects of the different expression of international right-wing populism, the communicative uh, forms by which violent discourse is normalized are largely under-researched. So pioneering studies suggest right-wing populists configure a sociology of violence that normalizes attacks and dehumanizes, we are saying, their opponents through communicative elements such humor and irony. 
So that's uh, the origin of the question of the research and also my personal uh, interest in this relation. To briefly follow up on that, uh, you're really finding that the relationship between normalization of violence against particular sections of society is very inextricably linked with the production of hate speech. As far right, this is an extreme expression of some of the main capitalist interests. The hate speech is like organically related uh, with the way that the far right is, is organized. We cannot find any far right that uh, don't present uh, these ethos, this performance of this violent uh, discourse. And uh, uh, starting from this point, we can uh, understand uh, this uh, political construction as, uh, as a specific way of sociology of violence that has a specific ex expression and uh, is founded in this relation. So building on this, an important focus of your work uh, or an important aspect of your work is also looking at hate speech and, and politics in our modern age of digitalization. And do you think there is something distinctive about the type of hate speech we are seeing today in an age where there is the widespread use of social media and information is traveling digitally everywhere? Do you think there's something socially and politically or legally distinctive about hate speech in that against that backdrop? Yeah, so I think that one of the key examples in understanding the current situation in with the digital culture is the figure of political influencers. So, of course, new technologies have profoundly transformed the various manifestations of political action. So um, describing political leaders as influencers acknowledge uh, their capacity to shape people's opinions and behaviors through different platforms, much like influencers uh, doing uh, in other domains. So contemporary political leaders often work on crafting their own personal brands akin to influencers. And this involves establishing a strong public image, employing a specific communication style and engaging consistently uh, with their audience. So media disintermediation is a central characteristic of the influencer ethos. It allows uh, these influencers to bypass traditional media intermediaries and engage with their audience in what appears to be a more direct relationship. Uh, these influencers act as a mediators between order and disorder within the social sphere. So in the case of Brazil, since 2013, the Brazilian media system has been profoundly affected by a loss of trust among viewers and readers, of course. So the traditional industry under scrutiny laid the groundwork for a polarized society that no longer believes in the traditional media model. Instead, it turns uh, to social media for reliable information, triggering a parallel process of truth production that traditional media used to provide. 
it has like a specific um, particularities in the case of yeah Latin American countries, as we were speaking about Brazil. And uh, indeed, one of the particularities of this project is uh, to place the global south and its uh, epistemological particularities in the case of uh, uh, communication disqualification at the center of the of the debate. That's really great. Just a note for our listeners, when if you want to look more into this figure of the social media influencers, you should listen to, to episode two of this podcast, where we talk about social media influencers and how they produce emotion and affect in the audience, which very negative affects towards particular communities a lot of the time. But staying in this area of media, humor, let's go back to something you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which is this idea of memes and particularly your phrase memetic violence, which seems to be very central to all of this work that you're doing on politics and on hate speech. Could you tell us a bit more about that concept? What is at the heart of that concept and why is it relevant? Sure. Yeah, we started the conversation speaking about uh, what I mean by a meme and uh, how it become uh, popular uh, in its humorous use. Specifically, the, the meme has a type of humor that uh, different authors and different people who study communication refer to as multimodal and, and complex. So the meaning of memes cannot be separated from the cultural context in which they are created. They often contain solutions to other images or cultural meanings, and the audience uh, has uh, the, the challenge to uh, interpret the meanings that uh, they consider with uh, the background that they have. So memes are used by political parties uh, with a persuasive purpose, uh, capable of transforming the perception of the original uh, partisan intentions. No? Uh, so they operate through short, synthetic, simple, and evaluative sentences uh, with uh, this mobilizing function that we were speaking before. And uh, as we were explaining a little, uh, different examples distinguish between jokes and symbolic violence, such as sexist, racist, or anti-Semitic humor. Memes present very various rhetorical uh, devices which condition the way that the audience interpret uh, their meanings. So in our research, uh, we have seen different levels of uh, what we call memetic violence from the most explicit, uh, usually aimed at deshumanizing the political opponents through, as we were putting some examples, scatological and monstrous elements to more sensitive messages that are uh, difficult uh, to decode. We have seen different images uh, trying to um, transform uh, the political leaders as animals. They are trying to uh, extract uh, the capacity to think uh, and all this way of deshumanization that is uh, central in the memetic violence and uh, normalize this violence, political violence, that is uh, uh, very central uh, also for uh, young people in the political arena nowadays. So the effects are multiple and largely unknown as they have non-rational or non-conscious perceptual uh, dimension. Very interesting. So do you think one of the powers of mimetic violence is that it 
it says something, but it leaves it to the viewer to interpret it and to put their own. So it's encouraging, for example, prejudice, but you can wash your hands of it a little bit. You can put it out there and then it, it circulates in the public interpretation. Nurse, that's uh, something central. Actually, uh, it's, it's difficult to identify who created uh, the meme. So normally you receive like in a closed social network, like for example, Telegram or WhatsApp, an image. Uh, you don't know this image uh, from who is coming. So little by little, this image is uh, evolving. It's like a collective uh, production. It makes difficult to put the limits of what is uh, more ironic, what is more humoristic, what has like a specific value or what uh, is something open to be understood uh, by the audience. So this collective production is, is central to understand the memes. And it's actually very common to see uh, political influencers or political leaders sharing memes that uh, don't have like explicit violence, but have this veiled violence that we were speaking before. As, uh, as you were saying, in the case that someone uh, says, okay, you are sharing something that can be racist or can be machism or whatever, they are going always to try to shave themselves and say that they are not sharing uh, anything offensive. So that's one of the powerful elements that uh, characterize, characterize the, the memetic communication and memetic violence. Mm, it probably makes it very difficult legally as well to capture it, like you're saying, to prove that actually it was meant to be intended as racist machismo or to incite any hatred in any way. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, one of the of the main challenges. It's very difficult to put the limits to the humor. That's something that we have seen in different cases. I think that like three years ago or something like this, uh, there was a very important report for the European Commission called "It's Not Funny Anymore." And it was the first document that was trying to collect information about the consequences, the violent consequences that can have the, the humor in the political arena. So, yeah, we have in front of us a long way to uh, try to put the limits, but at the same time to maintain the free speech and all the, the challenges that we uh, have in this difficult relation fascinating and I think it's also very good to know it's good for for everybody to be aware how complicated these matters actually are because I think sometimes that just gets glossed over in public reporting where it's like hate speech this or hate speech that but like the boundaries of it are so fuzzy there's so much interpretation but to round this off I do I do want to bring us back a little bit to to this question of of Latin America and also maybe questions of post-colonialism a little bit. And so in India, where I work, which is which is a post-colonial country, there is a lot of struggles around the regulation of hate speech. And there's also a lot of struggles around defining it. And there's two sides of some people who argue that hate speech really is any kind of offensive speech by any group against any other group. And then another camp that's basically saying that, no, hate speech is 
fundamentally about power, the same way that hate crimes are fundamentally about power, and that something should only be called hate speech if it is directed against members of a oppressed community, because offensive speech is only actually going to have a real political effect if it flows from a powerful position to a less powerful position. So, for example, Shahrukh Alam, who is a, uh, a lawyer and a scholar here, she argues that if, for example, a member of the Hindu community curses out a, a Muslim, then that is hate speech because that can have a real effect on the democratic participation of that of the Muslim community because they are a minority, they are more marginalized. But if somebody from the Muslim community says something offensive to a Hindu community, it's not going to actually have the same effect the same social or political impact. It's not going to harm the opportunities or the, the social and political opportunities of the Hindu community in any significant way. And that therefore also legally, we should really define hate speech only as something that flows from power to less power. Now, looking at your context, how do you feel about that argument in the settings you've worked with? Is that an analysis you would agree with? or not agree with, and why not? Well, I think that there are a lot of lot of elements in common. So, uh, of course, one of the particularities that we frequently find in post-colonial countries is the way in which historical discriminations continue to be reproduced today. So, in this sense, I would like to highlight the close correlation in these countries of media structures with their colonial past, I think that's that's central to understand the, the, the point. In the case of Brazil, the so-called electronic uh, coronelismo, coronelism, like is, 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 this is like a, a specific term from Brazil to understand like the, the historical political power. This so-called electronic coronelismo is an expression of the accumulation of capital and media structures around a series of families with close ties to political power, constructing an ecosystem characterized by the particularization of collective interest, clientelism, and information manipulation. So despite the structural transformations undergone in recent decades, this post-colonial logic is still enforced in the media culture of social networks, Instagram, Facebook, or the, the lives that we see from these political influencers. So strengthening a political polarization that organizes the logic of particular uh, interests. So the far right incorporates a defining part of its ethos, this attack and exclusion. What I want to say with this is that this is something with historical origins. And I think that to understand how these discriminations are articulated nowadays in post-colonial countries, we need to understand uh, better uh, this uh, connection with uh, the media structures and the political uh, power. I, I'm so I'm so happy that you said that because I do I do genuinely think that there is something very specific that ha that's going on with not just the emergence of hate speech in post-colonial context but also if you look again at India the regulation of it if you look at the legal codes here they are also continuous with with the colonial period a lot of those like the the penal Indian penal code they have not been updated and 
the way hate speech is defined here is very much in terms of incitement and does something cause something and it really misses a lot of the nuance of our contemporary sort of situation so i i think that's a, it's a really good point to say that we really have to look at it historically if we want to do anything about it i just have one final question for you today obviously we we all have very intimate relations to our work but hate speech is a term that's everywhere right now. Everybody's talking about hate speech, but very few people are really systematically researching or analyzing hate speech. So why do you think it is important to do research on hate speech and right-wing politics and the link between the two? Why is it important to do that right now? And what's really at stake? Why is it so crucial that we speak about this and educate others about it? Sure, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I believe that the new forms of communication under media structures are at a moment of historical transformation. So it is uh, that moment that Gramsci, that is actually like a main main character also for like like far right is, is reading Gramsci a lot. Uh, so it's a moment that Gramsci defined it as a morbid symptoms, you know, in, in which the old does not die and the new is not yet born. So in between monsters uh, like the ones we see in the projects represented by these right uh, wingers emerge. So um, moreover, uh, hate speech has already demonstrated the detrimental effect it has on democratic institutions. Uh, the Brazilian case and its obscene copy of the invasion of the U US Capitol uh, is representative of this. Um, Bolsonarismo's uh, 2022 election campaign, as happened also before in uh, 2018, was based largely uh, on the dissemination of a multitude of memes, images, and viral TikTok videos from political influencers. So these campaign messages often show with cognitive dissonance and distorting reality. Um, unprecedented elements dominated uh, the campaign agenda, including demonstrations in favor of military interventions, allegations of electoral fraud and communist conspiracies, denial of scientific facts and climate change. So uh, political rival Lula da Silva was deshumanized, represented as a monster through a constant uh, attack. So this normalization of aggressive rhetoric and open attack on democracy spread across the country, powered by information bubbles and segmented algorithms that uh, intensified political polarization. What I say is, I think that to understand uh, why this aggression, in the case of Brazil that I'm using as an example, was justified in the political sphere, uh, it is crucial to further study uh, the harmful effects of hate speech. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. Is there, this was a really fascinating conversation and thank you so much for taking the, the time to come on. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you, they want to talk more about your work, where can they look you up? Well, thank you so much, Sanjay. It was great to have this conversation and uh, congratulations about this really great and important project that uh, you are doing. Uh, yeah, sure. I am really open to speak with people uh, and also to learn from, from 
from people about these questions, you can write me using my email from the Uni of London. You can see my profile in the website of the School of Advanced Studies at the Uni of London, where you can find all uh, my contact uh, details and information. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gabrielle.